Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-391. This is going to be a long one. If this is your first time downloading or listening, please accept our humble apologies. This is Chris, your friend and host, and newly minted 100-mile ultra runner. And there's a lot of context for all this, trust me, but you're going to have to bear with me as I somewhat fittingly, I might add, drop you into the culmination of this adventure. This will be a three-act play of sorts. First, we will start with some exposition in the form of my last two weeks of taper and a brief recorded chat with my coach going into the race. Act one will commence with the play itself as it rolls out across an ultra-long race report. So you might want to take this one in chunks or save it for your own multi-hour long run. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Act 1, Fevered Dreams. The Ultra Taper Madness. It's the last week of taper before the race. I feel like shit, really. I've had a mildly upset stomach all week. My head has been muddy. I'm totally unmotivated, like a waking six-beer hangover. I woke up screaming last night from some unsettling dream, and my wife will confirm this because she smacked me and said, You're screaming. Rather matter-of-factly, I might add, like this is the sort of madness she expects from me. Makes me wonder what I would have to do to surprise her. I've got a hundred miles to run this weekend. As much as I pride myself on my mental and physical stoicism, I have to admit I'm a mess. I'm told it helps to talk about it. I'm going to invent a new business called Taper Camp. And this will be a place where you can go one or two weeks prior to your A race. And at Taper Camp, 
you will be put into comfy pajamas and stuck into a padded room painted in soft tones with a beanbag chair and a plush bed, soft music and nice essential oil smells will waft from the walls. You will be served warm porridge and fresh vegetables at comfortable intervals, laced with natural vitamins and minerals. The daily agenda at Taper Camp begins with two hours of guided meditation, yoga, and stretching. And after a light breakfast, you enter into a session of interactive therapy with caring, certified professionals. And near midday, you leave with the group for some extended light stretching and a short run on mountain trails where deer gamble, birds chirp friendly songs, and fish jump about in merry crystal streams. Late afternoon, you spend on the massage table, getting smoothed over for a couple hours. An early evening communal movie, let's say St. Ralph or Chariots of Fire, and then you're nipped off to bed where they read you a story and tuck you in. That's what I want. Failing that, you could drop me into a suspended animation pod for a couple weeks. And I've always been this way. When there is a test on the horizon, I want to get to it. I want to get started. I hate waiting. When I'm in this sort of subconscious fight-or-flight nervous breakdown, I reach for the comfort food. I've eaten more ice cream this week than in the last five years. What is this weird self-abuse? Last week wasn't so bad. I was on a five-day road trip across the country for work, and I still got to run three days. I didn't have the time or the energy to think about the upcoming race. Tuesday morning, on day two of my trip, I woke up in the Cincinnati airport, which, as seasoned travelers know, is actually in Hebron, Kentucky. The Cincinnati airport is in Kentucky. It just is. Get over it. Looking at the map and having a free morning, I saw that I was quite close to the Ohio River. I got my stuff on, headed out to explore a bit, and it turns out the Ohio River is at the bottom of a valley guarded on both sides by large bluffs. And I was soon on a very steep, quite windy, surprisingly busy back road that weaved down 500 feet or so to the river road. And it's never a great way to start a run heading straight downhill because you know at the end you're going to have to climb back up. And this back road reminded me of West Virginia or somewhere else not far off in the Appalachians where there is no shoulder and a 40-50 foot drop into God knows what. It was full sun and mid-80s and humid. Even jet-lagged, I had plenty of juice in my legs to manage the heat and the climbing. I wasn't worried. When I got to the River Road, aptly named River Road, the broad expanse of the Ohio River opened in front of me. Just west of the city of Cincinnati, the Ohio is the border between the two states, and here it runs wide and placid with the tall bluffs climbing unencumbered by much civilization on both sides. Barges and ferries ply their trade, and I wondered why there weren't more nice houses on this piece of waterfront, probably because it's a flood zone. And even with the mighty river rolling laconically by, the area impressed me as a bit hard-pressed economically. 
The houses that were there weren't all that well kept. The roadsides were dense with the trash of rural poverty, Bud Light cans, lottery tickets, cigarette trash. Not long into River Road, I came upon construction barriers, barring the way. Assuming they meant cars, not me, I continued trotting along in the morning heat. Soon enough, I found the construction crews assessing a washout. I nodded my good mornings and squeezed by. I took off my shirt and hung it in a tree so I could recover it on the return trip. I figured I'd get some sun on my body and there were no cars to offend anyhow. I continued to my turnaround point, throwing in some surges to keep it honest, and started back. I was blocked by the work crew doing something with a big bucket loader and steel beams for a few minutes, but was able to retrieve my shirt and push on to the hill where I had started. I figured this was pretty good training for the ultra with the heat and the steep hill. I wanted to run the whole thing, but quickly changed my mind to a run-walk cadence to keep from blowing up too badly. I was glad I brought more than one set of running stuff, because I was well irrigated, as were my clothes. The next morning, I misread my workout and didn't have enough time to get my run in before my appointment, so I did something I hate to do, which is push it out to the afternoon. And you know how it is, especially when you're traveling, the probability of completing a workout goes way down when you push it to later in the day. But I beat the odds. I was able to get a lovely late afternoon, early evening run in at my destination, Iowa City, Iowa. For the second time in two days, I found myself navigating the side of a river. This one, the Iowa River, where it runs broad and shallow through that university town. There was a nice park with bike paths that I could navigate north from my hotel, skirting the college town and heading out into the suburbs. It was a lovely night. It was cooler, very hospitable. In the parks, immigrant families gathered around picnics, giving me friendly encouragement on my trundling way. At one point, I ran through a family frisbee game and called for a pass. They threw it to me. I'm out of practice. I dropped it, but retrieved it and threw it back with an underhand flourish that my prep school mates would recognize and appreciate from those long afternoon games on the quad. I couldn't help but wonder why these broad, empty places don't want more immigrants. There seemed to be plenty of room to me. Even with the temperate weather, my clothes were soaked again, and I wouldn't have time to dry them for the morning. And never one to be discouraged by circumstance, I hunted down the laundry room in the hotel in the morning and paid a dollar fifty and quarters to dry my running stuff. Not wash, mind you, just dry. And let us all pause here for a moment to say a prayer for that poor soul who used that dryer next. Maybe they have the sanguinity to be thankful for the gift of musk, like a free preview of an expensive ambergris-scented eau de endurance. Finally, on Friday morning, I woke up on Camino Real in the town of Redwood City, California. 
and I ran north on the sidewalk with the commuter rail trains rushing by between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Local strip malls crouched along the side of the road, auto parts and hardware stores giving ground fitfully to the inevitable encroach of feng shui parlors and yoga studios and coffee shops. It was a pleasure in that cool California morning sun to take an easy seven miles out in the dawn. In my freshly dried running gear, it was a breeze. The week whizzed by with meetings and workouts, and I hardly thought about the impending hundred-miler. I got home about 3 a.m. with the flight back from Cali and slept in a bit on Saturday, my rest day. I figured even the jet lag and the odd hours were good training for this 24-plus hours I'd be spending on the trail. In Sunday, seven miles in the rain with some running buddies was a true joy. I felt full of energy and relaxed. But then Monday rolled around and I started feeling not so good. The weather was weird all week, humid, with random dark thunderstorms wandering the region like angry ronin. I was deprived the medicinal solace of riding my old motorcycle to work for more than two weeks. The weather made sleeping hard. Most of the time, the air hung heavy, like the inside of some dank animal womb, it's not hot enough for full-on AC, and you end up cycling between sweating and shivering all night long. The last week of taper was filled with restlessness, lethargy, and upset tummy. So be it. I guess my subconscious knows that there is undiscovered country here to be traversed. But now, the day draws nigh and I am melting into the certainty of action, the friendly, if testing, embrace of the event itself. The adventure, the trial. This is what our sport, our adventure, whatever it is, should teach us. We should be able to lean into the fear and the unknown of the race and learn something about ourselves. That's the good stuff. We don't train to win. We don't even train to finish. We train for the right to begin. And then we take the gift of learning. We peel back the veil in the thin places we create by stepping into the adventure. Godspeed, my friends. There will come a day when I cannot run. Today is not that day. Once more into the breach. And now for today's featured interview. Yeah, so, uh, Jeff, I wanted to talk to you about a couple things. First, congratulations on your uh, Ironman team this past weekend. That was pretty yeah. amazing, huh? How many it, it was pretty It was pretty amazing to, to, to send 37 people um, to the, the start of an Ironman event. It was exhausting to begin with, but when 33 people finish, that's way above the odds. And so uh, it was exciting. It was a long day. But it was um, a lot of fun. Yeah, I was looking at some of the, the folks, and they don't look like pros, some of those folks. So good for you for getting them uh, to the finish line. Yeah, we had a lot, a lot of PRs, um, over 15 hours in total PRs. 
So uh, what happened to the four that didn't finish? Did they DNS or DNF? Uh, one didn't make the bike cut off. Um, one had some mechanical problems, so they broke down on the bike. One had a medical issue, and uh, I think there were two who didn't make the bike cut off. So. Okay, well that's a tough ride at Lake Placid, right? Well, it's it, it's tough and it's a tougher ride in general, but the the wind conditions on Sunday were so bad that they had to pedal downhill. Huh. Yeah, and. Yeah. There was hail out on the course. There was rain. The wind was really, really bad. And and some of my really experienced bike riders went 30 to 40 minutes longer than they normally do on that course. Yeah. Well, anyhow, congratulations. That's something dragging all those uh, all those people through a training cycle. Anyhow, so yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about this uh, this race got coming up and my training cycle. Um, you know, again, amazing. Uh, I'm looking at some of the miles I did. And I am just amazed that my body didn't blow up, right? Not even a little bit. I don't have any knee pain, any, you know, any real, I have no tendonitis at all. So, and I, I can't remember the last time I put in a 90 plus mile a week. And, and I like to say this all the time, and you know, 100, 100 milers are great, are great folks, right? But it, it, it's a different thing. It, it's not like, you know, because you don't do a lot of speed work. You, you don't do a, a lot of the hard stuff that you do when you're getting ready for um, a marathon. And it, and you're off the road all the time. You know, you're practicing the run-walk thing, yeah. uh, which is, you know, an intrinsic part of of 100-mile training is because, you know, the, the bottom line is for a guy like you on a course like you're going to go on, you know, the old adage is run when you can, walk when you have to, right? Yeah. And, and that's the way to approach it. So... You know, you have to be mentally prepared for that, especially for a guy like you who's a sub-330 marathoner. You know, there's a certain mentality and a certain thing that happens mentally when you stop to walk. Yeah, and, and plus, I, I get, I'm also sort of ADD, so yeah. I really had to learn how to be in the moment and stop thinking about the future. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you, you know, it, it's, hard when, it's hard when you're a runner and, and a road runner. And you'd never stop running to stop and then start again and stop and then start again and do that on a continual basis and with long periods of walks sometime. Right. Um, so, yeah, you it's you're going to go to a lot of dark places in this race. Trust me, you're going to be in dark places that you haven't been. And and that's one of the reasons why, I, you know, I, I have you do that run overnight so you can experience what it's like to be alone in the dark on a trail you know, waiting for the sun to come up because, you know, I talk to 100 milers all the time and they say that probably one of the most motivational things in the course of the day is when the sun starts to come up after they've been going all night. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, part, talk a little strategy or I'm looking at this, um, this course and this start time. So first of all, this course is, if you look at the elevation and the technical, um, rating of it, you know, most of this course is way easier than what I train on normally. Right. Which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it's a good thing in the sense that the course is easier. It's a bad thing in the sense is that's not really what I trained on. You know, fire roads and and dirt roads isn't what I trained on. So but looking at that, depending on what happens in the second 50 miles, I could be done before the sun comes up. Yeah, you could be. I mean, it's and that and and that's kind of a neat thing, too. I mean, it's what. Yeah, you very well could be done before the sun comes up. Uh, and 
you know, you'll probably be going, thank God I'm done before this thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you can get the bed while it's still dark. Yeah, but I may not be because that means that the harder bits, the more technical bits of this course are going to be in the deep dark. You know, yeah. it's going to be mile 80 is going to be in the deep dark. Well, you know, here's the other thing that, that you'll learn and that, you know, I had to learn just pacing someone overnight one time. And you put that headlamp on and, and as a road runner and you're out there in the trails in the dark for the first time, you get kind of mesmerized by the stuff going on around you and, and you forget and you forget to keep looking down. Yeah, you, and, you really got to slow down. And the next thing you know, you're laying on your face. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I actually I got better over the course of the training where I didn't fall down as much. I kind of learned. The yeah. fir- first couple, especially that second day where I was running the day after the long run, one time I swear I fell down like six times in a 15-mile trail run. Yeah. And, and they were bad. They hurt. You know, they were to the point where I had open wounds on my hands. Yeah. Um, and I noticed I was watching um, that that uh, Speed Goat Meltzer uh, documentary on the AT Trail. I noticed yeah. he wears these half gloves. So when he falls down, he doesn't wreck his hands. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah all 100 milers fall down. Yeah. So that, maybe, maybe not every race, but, you know, generally they have, they have a history going to the ground at some point or the other. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things that the legs start getting a little bit tired. You, you stop lifting the feet as high and, you know, you get caught on something and, and you're tired, especially at the end of the race. You know, legs are tired and, you know, the whole body's tired and you, and you get caught on something and there's no way of saving it. Yeah, what I found in the running in the dark and the technical stuff is you don't necessarily have to fall down, but your foot plants are off by just a little bit because of the depth perception in the dark. And so you're landing sort of sideways a lot. And it, I found my ankles and my feet got the shit beat out of them just from doing that, you know, for three hours. Right? Yeah. Sort of mincing through the, the, the baby heads in the dark. So it's, it's, it's interesting. That's for sure. But overall, I felt great on that overnight. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how great I felt. I went super slow and took a lot of really long breaks. So, um, And overall, I just got stronger as that training progressed, right? Um, you know, you probably weren't paying attention because you had 37 Ironmen to drag across the line, but I got stronger. I was way less. I wasn't as beat up afterwards, right? Yeah, well, you do get stronger. Um, and, 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 you know, it's funny. You, you you, you had a great training cycle for a first hundred miler. I mean, you know, there was, there was lots of times where, you know, coach, I'm tired and, you know, that, but that's to be expected, right? And, um, but you had a great training cycle. No injuries per se. And you had a lot going on in your life, but we managed to get the big stuff in we needed to get in. You know, so I think it's, I think you're going to have, a, I think you're going to have a really good first hundred miler. You know, the focus is don't get caught up on when you finish, just get caught up on finishing, right? Right. And because yeah. a lot of people will get caught up on, they'll think, well, they go into a hundred mile or even in their first hundred mile and say, geez, I, I sure would like to break that 24 hour buckle thing. Right. Yeah. And, and then they start getting disappointed as they see that 24 hours dissipating and going away. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and when you're out there on the thing, it's funny. We, you know, we have a girl you know, on our team who's done, I think Stephanie's done. I think she just finished her sixth or eighth hundred miler this past weekend. When she runs under miler, she'll say to her pacer all of a sudden, okay, it's time for a nap. And yeah. she's, she sits on the side of the trail and takes a little 15 or 20 minute nap and then gets up and starts to run again. You know, all, all hundred milers do it differently. And, uh, you know, so you're going to be out there and you're going to say, okay, well, what's going to work for me? 
to get me to the finish. And, and if it means sitting down in an aid station, taking a little bit longer than normal. Yeah, hey. I know. I listen to these guys who have rough races and they finish. They basically can take an hour, two hours, right? They take these big chunks of time to recover because uh, it's an all-day event, you know, and still yep. make the cutoff. So, yeah, I don't have a problem, uh, you know, but I definitely need to focus on going out slow. Because I always have had that problem, especially in first, you know, when I'm well-trained in an event I'm not familiar with, my tendency is always to get overexcited early. Yeah, so. maybe um, it's, uh, wait, wait, do you see, wait, do you see your, your first like hundred miler aid stations? Yeah. Nothing like, nothing like marathon aid stations. Yeah. And that's, you know, I was talking to my friends and they're like, oh, you gotta, you have to have a spreadsheet with everything you need for every aid station. And I'm looking at these aid stations going, I don't need to bring anything with me. They have everything. <laughs> you know, all I need is a water bottle here, you know. But I don't want to stay in the aid stations. That's a trap too, right? Because if you got 10 aid stations and you're spending 20 minutes in each one, that's 200 minutes. Yeah, it's it's a common mistake that people do spend too much time in, in aid stations. And, you know, they get in there, they get comfortable, they sit down. You know, you may at the halfway point or somewhere along the line want to change your shoes, um, change your socks and you know, that should be kind of your longest aid station break, right? Where you, you say, okay, well, I think I'm going to change my shoes now for the next half of the run. I need to change my socks because they're too wet, you know, or something like that. And that's going to happen in the middle of the night. And that should be the time you sit down and regroup, take a couple of minutes there longer than you would at the other aid stations. But the other aid stations, you know, you got to get what you want, you know, because, you know, the great thing is you're on a trail. So grab what you want, walk along the trail and eat and, and eat what you can eat while you're walking along the trail. Yeah. Um, rather than standing in that aid station and standing around talking to people and he'd pick a few things up with you and go. Yeah, and after, after messing around with all the nutrition, I think the simplest thing for me to do is just to eat sort of pretzels and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because uh, all the sugary stuff makes me sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm so fat adapted that I, I'm pretty sure, you know, it's not gonna I'm not going to crash too badly if exactly. I don't get sugar in me. So Exactly. Yeah, so that's 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 good. And it looks like uh, we're not going to get that hot day, you know, the full sun hot day. It's going to be overcast like uh, mid-70s. So, you know, the humidity will still be bad. And it might be some rain, but it looks like pretty good racing weather. Yeah, and the, night, the nights will be chilly. Yeah, it drops down into the 60s. But it was chilly when I did my overnight. It got down in the 50s. Actually, it was cold when I broke out in the open. Talk to me about typical strategy going into these things. I mean, the second half is like a big unknown, right? You just don't know. So I think it, like when we train for a marathon, we train to get to mile 20 and be able to race. I think I get, I sort of feel like what we trained for this time was to get to mile 50 or 70 and then still be able to race, you know, in a different context. You know, when you think about it, you've done a 50 mile run and back it up with a, with a 20 mile run. Unlike marathon training where, you know, you do that long run on Sunday and then Monday's a rest day or something like that. With the 100-mile training, you do that long run with another long run behind it. And that's kind of preparing your body for the second half of that run. Because it you, you, you've had that work and the next day you got to get up and do the work again. So, you know, the strategy is is, is to, to really manage the first 60 miles. Not the first 50 miles, but the first 60 miles. You get through those first 60 miles... You know, you're now you're on your downward track to getting home. Yeah. Um, so, but you got to get through those first 60 miles so there's something left in the tank for the next 40. Yeah. And because generally that's the point you can pick up a pacer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
And, you know, once you get that pacer at at nighttime, when you're at that 60 mile point, you know, then you have someone out there with you, encouraging you and talking your way through it or how or whatever you want that pacer to do. And make sure you let that pacer know what you want them to do. You know, I pace a lot of people. You know, I'll pace David Murphy and David Murphy only basically says a couple of things. Okay, run. Okay, walk. You know, that's basically what he does. He doesn't like a lot of he doesn't you know, he doesn't like a lot of storytelling and stuff. You know, when I pace you know, a guy like Dane, it's the same way, not a lot of talk. But there's some people who like, you know, to, you know, just they say, just, you know, tell me stories. You know, whatever going to make you feel better, you, you got to get from your pacer because they're there to get you through what's going to be the hardest part of the day, those last 40 miles. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you really got to sit down with your pacer and you know, have them carry extra stuff for you as well. Well, you yeah. can't do that. That's muling. That's illegal. Yeah, but I mean, if they have if they have some fuel in their packets, there's nothing wrong with you sharing that. Well, as long as you do it in a in a, in within certain distance of a, uh, of a right. aid station. I mean, not that I'm going to win anything; it doesn't really matter. Well, but and the reason why I'm saying that is your fuel might be different than anything they have there. So if he's carrying that extra fuel for you when you get to the aid station, you can just get at the stuff out of his pack that's your fuel. Right, I got gotcha. you. Yes, like if, yeah. if I was doing an ultra and I was doing a hundred, you know, I, you know, I use F2C now, and that's the only product I use. Yeah. Uh, and so I would, I, I would never be able to carry enough at that point in the race because I'm going to be tired and I, and I don't like things bugging me. I would have all that stuff in in my pacer's pack, so when I got to the aid station, I could just pull it out of his pack and take it. Yeah, no, that's a good idea because like I'm, I don't like to carry a lot of stuff, so. Yeah, um, I. You know, Backpacks annoy me, and you know I can. I basically can do a two handheld thing. Yep, that's what I do too. I put one on my hip and one in my hand. Right. Yeah, it gives me a free hand for something else. Right. So yeah, so I I have actually had a really rough taper week this past week. My uh, I don't know if it's mental or physical, but I've been sort of had a rumbly tummy all week, and and it's been gross and humid here. Um, been tired and not been sleeping well. You know, <laughs> so it's uh, I don't know if it's the race or if I'm just sick or I don't know what's going on. Because I, well, I was on the road last week and it was great, you know, because I had something to think about besides the race. Well, this is an unknown for you. Um, anytime your body goes goes through an unknown, your mind goes through an unknown, you're, you're going to react a little bit differently. You know, important thing is now, you know, tonight, big rest night, you know, yeah. get as much as you can tonight. Um, you know, cause tomorrow the, you know, the nerves will hit a little bit, but you know, I think that's the thing about ultra people don't really go into ultras, you know, the regular, the regular age group doesn't go into an ultra all nervous and, and, and wear it up like they do with marathons or Ironman or anything like that, because you know, you, you're out there the first time around to survive yeah, and, and to finish and, you know, to get that buckle. That's what you want to do. You want to get that buckle. So, you know, you want to get rest. You want to go in there. You want to be relaxed at the start. Again, one of the things that's going to shock you is when the gun goes off and people just start walking instead of running. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little different mentality than what than the Boston Marathon. Yeah. All right. So last question: uh, How long uh, till I can turn around another race? I'm thinking the uh, Wapak Trail out there at the end of August is probably a good one. The first uh, Memorial Day, I should be able to crush that race. But you know, I kind of feel like I got a lot of. Uh, a pretty deep well right now. I should be able to turn it around and requalify at some point this fall. You you want to requalify for Boston in August? 
No, not in August. No, oh, okay. I, I got I got till next uh, August to requalify for Boston. For uh, 2019, I'm already qualified. Yeah. So I could do in October or November, which is actually good because then you get a cold, you know, colder colder temperatures, which is always good for me. Yeah, you know, we just have to see how the recovery goes. You know how it is. Everyone recovers, you know, at a different rate. You actually recover pretty quickly most times, but. Well, we'll see how badly I. Uh... <laughs> Yeah. See if something goes sideways here. Yeah, we'll see what the cuts and bruises are like. <laughs> All right, man. I'll let you go. Thanks for the kind words. Thanks for talking me into this. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's always fun to get old guys to try new stuff. Yeah, I'm going to be 56 this fall. I'm pretty impressed <laughs> with myself. Yeah, you did. You had a great training cycle, Chris. You're going to have a good day. Yeah. All right. Thanks, man. We'll All right, see ya. Talk to you later. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Act 2. Into the Unknown. The portable lights splashed opaquely into a hungry, overcast morning. Just after 3 a.m. A few hundred ultra runners milled about at a place called Squire's Castle. An abandoned edifice a country house from the age of robber barons, stripped to its solid skeleton, keeping a watch on a hill in a park. I fiddled with the race app to see if I could start it somewhere near the actual start time and somewhere near the actual start line, and then wrangled it back into my slant pack. It appeared to have rained recently. The grassy field of the start was thick with wet. Headlamps, Chest lamps, glow sticks, flashlights switched on, glowing a centipede of people out of the park and onto the road. My morning started with some urgency and excitement. I did that thing where you set the alarm accidentally to p.m. instead of a.m. I meant to rouse myself at one twenty or so, so I'd have a solid 45 minutes to prep and get to the buses. Luckily, my subconscious, attuned or blessed with its own inner timetable, sent me a message at 1.46 a.m. that something was wrong, and I bolted out of my brief bed in a mild panic. I did my best to spray paint my undercarriage with liquid bandage, throw my stuff on, and get out of the hotel in the time I had. I had all my stuff laid out. It wasn't an emergency, just an urgency. My wife and I had driven out the straight line from Massachusetts through Connecticut, New York, across all of the rolling rock of Pennsylvania and into Ohio in the morning. It took ten hours. I picked up my bib and stuff and was listening to the race briefing when Mike and Kevin rolled in from Detroit. We had a nice dinner at one of those craft beer places in our host town of Cuyahoga Falls. We caught up traded stories. It was good for my wife to see that these people I'm always calling my friends are actual people and actual friends. A person with a family and friends can accomplish many things. I was committed to doing this thing, but they had the experience and were committed to me doing it as well. And I was buoyed by the confidence in them that they were going to get me to the finish. I checked them into their hotel, I prepped my gear, I set my alarm incorrectly, I got into bed and slept hard until my subconscious alarm tossed me onto the floor. 
The buses didn't leave until after 2.30. Fifty or sixty of us sat around at the corner in the dark waiting for the school buses to come along. I noted with the buses and the early start my day would stretch out another five or six hours on top of the race itself, bleeding well into that second 24 hours. Not much sleep. I felt out of place, these hard-looking guys in running sandals and lumberjack beards full of deep confidence. Mostly people were silent, but those talking told stories of other, harder adventures, days without sleep, broiling, freezing adventures, the stuff of the ultra-universe, where the unimaginable is common currency. There wasn't much chatter. On the ride up to the castle, folks dozed and checked gear. I futzed with the race app. The first 20 miles were mostly on roads. I jogged along with the pack, chatting best I could with people. They would ask me where I was from, and I would say Boston, and remind them that we had a race there they might have heard of. Some small thing inside me screaming, No, really, I am a real runner, really! The deeper question was always, how did you get into ultra running? Back in the pack, the stories were similar to the stories we have all heard. They were told to lose some weight by a doctor. They ran a 5k and were hooked. And in the inevitable cascade of events, they found themselves here on this road shoulder in Ohio at five o'clock in the morning in the dark. I had on my road hokas for this first section. My old slant pack held two bottles, and I carried one. The third bottle was empty of fluids, but had individual baggy servings of my current energy drink mix, F2C Endurance, some Endurolites, and a small tube of lube. I also carried a flask of hammer gel as a backup energy source. Depending on how I felt, I could switch between the one 24-ounce bottle of water and one 20-ounce bottle of F2C, one on my hip, one in my hand, and this gave me 44 ounces of fluid to manage between the aid stations. I took some hike breaks on the hills when everyone else did. I had no preset cadence, just taking it easy, biding my time. I wanted to stay in a low effort level, stay on top of my nutrition, and just relax and not overthink it. I had dug out my old Sunto watch and added an ultra mode where it only sampled GPS every 60 seconds. It made the battery last, but also was wildly inaccurate. I reluctantly carried my iPhone with me in the slant pack with the RaceJoy app, As much as I hate racing with a phone and a battery charger block, the app made it easy on my pacers, so I acquiesced. I never took out the phone during the race, but I could hear it telling me the miles, and yes, your cheering came through at odd intervals. It was interesting to be hiking along in the dark and have yee-haw or a horse whinny (laughs) randomly blast out of my hip. The app ended up being useful especially at the end when my Garmin died. The morning was cool and wet, not raining, just misty and humid, good racing weather. The mist swirled in our headlamp beams as the sun rose slowly. This part of the country is situated quite far west in the eastern time zone, and the sun wouldn't break the horizon until after 6.30. 
I felt okay. I had learned through my training that it really doesn't matter how you feel in these long sessions. If you feel bad, it'll change. If you feel good, that'll change too. You just center yourself in the now and run as you feel. The first aid station rolled by without incident. The volunteers were great. I told them what I wanted. They did it for me. I grabbed a PB&J and some pretzels. They let me jump the line at the porta potty I did that thing that I do in the morning. All systems functioning normally. When we finally got into some single path trails, I was celebratory. Here was my happy place. The swoopy trails were not terribly difficult. We hit a couple creek crossings and my shoes got dunked, but it was all good. Mike and Kevin met me at mile 25 and I was feeling great. The sun was up and I dropped my lights with them. We hit a long canal pass section as the morning rolled on. I dropped in with a group of experienced runners who had a plan. They were running a casual 24-hour finish race. And since the weather was good, they were going to knock out the first easier sections at an easy pace, and that would give them extra time for the hard stuff in the dark. Sounded good to me, so I just hung with them. The canal path turned into a bike path, and it follows the Cuyahoga River south. It was heavily trafficked with bikers and walkers, and it was open to the sun as well, not much cover. We were passed by the local cross-country teams doing their summer workouts, all youth and fitness, the boys shirtless in the Ohio sun. The sun and the heat were noticeable, but not hot like you would complain about. Mid-70s to low 80s, with the sun coming in and out, I stayed on top of my salts and my fluids, and I ate something solid at every aid station. And the route was canal path, bridle path, roads, and trails. Bridle paths are horse roads, a bit like a fire road. Wide-groomed dirt roads with piles of horse poo every so often, like organic mile markers. The trails were single path at times, with roots and fallen trees, but not many rocks like we have around my house. Much of the trail followed the blue-blazed Buckeye Trail system that loops around Ohio. As I worked my way into the 30s and the 40s, we got into some of the harder sections that would repeat the same story over and over again through the course of the race. The trail or road would just be rolling along, rising and falling. Long sections of shallow ups, long sections of shallow downs... And then we'd get to a steep drop down a path into a creek crossing. The sort of steep where you had to dig in a little bit and break for your descent. And there would be a rock hop across a shallow creek. And then a chin scraper up the other side. And there were probably 10, 15, 20 of these throughout the race. You know, and each one maybe 100 to 500 feet tall. And... In the middle of the race, there's some really pretty features. Lots of these rock ledge sections. Uh, one long bike trail section had these cool stratified rock ledges all along the side. And then Kevin and I ran through a section in the 50s that was all rock ledges and caves and a lot of tourists run wandering around. It was pretty. But it got to the point 
later in the race where I would just say, oh, crap, we're heading down again. And I know what that means. And on these slopes, there are a lot of these trail breaks built into the sharp slopes, the really steep slopes that were like stairs of landscaping ties at odd angles and random tread lengths and partially washed out. So you had to hike up those. And there weren't any mountains per se, but there were plenty of these sharp 300, 500 foot dips in and out. And there was plenty of road and bridle trail, but where it was hilly, it was really hilly. Mike and Kevin met me again at 37, and I was still strong and happy and motoring along. And my undercarriage was starting to chafe up, but hey, what can you do? I lubed up best I could. I switched out of my road shoes and into the speed goats because I had heard that the next section was a technical bit. I really didn't know the course. It seemed to me like a wasted effort to try to memorize every section prior to the race. And you know how I am, right? Show up and run. Instead, as the race progressed, I sort of organically absorbed the highlights from the other runners. And I learned that before we got to that 50-mile aid station, there was a section called the Bog of Despair, where apparently you had to run through some sort of gnarly swamp feature. And I attempted a joke about rodents of unusual size, but it fell on deaf and unappreciative ears. Now, the bug feature was a narrow single path through a, through a valley. And if it had been a wet season, this might have been a despairing foot or so of sticky mud. But on this day, it was dry, so it was merely a lumpy footpath with a couple creek crossings. And there was a fair amount of climbing through the 40s, and it was starting to feel like work, but I was moving right along and feeling good. And I really liked the single path. That gave me a lot of energy, because that's what I trained on, not so much the roads. I was trading places with an oncologist through most of the middle part of the race, and even towards the end. And I showed him how to do a 12-24 walk-run cadence on the shallow inclines to save energy and still keep the pace. With the good weather and good trail conditions, I was I was moving right along without pushing too hard. Everything was copacetic, no issues, no surprises. I knew from my training I had 50 miles in me, and now I was approaching the real race, the undiscovered country, and I put the swamp of despair in my rearview mirror and rolled strongly into the 50-mile station where I would pick up my pacers, change my clothes, and the fun would commence. It was early afternoon. Some of those isolated thunderstorms wandered by to block the sun, but never broke rain on us. Act 3, The Reckoning. I was 66 miles in. Kevin had just pulled me through the ledges and this exposed uh, rolling road section, and I was starting to hurt. I knew I needed to keep fueling and keep that energy up, but the heat and the effort were taking their toll. Kevin ran with me from 50 through 66, and Mike picked me up there. We kept pushing through the Pine Hollow station at mile 70, and to get to Pine Hollow, they made you run up these two steep Sound of Music hills. Very picturesque, but it's a bit of a kick in the head because 
You can see and hear the aid station, but you have to climb these hills to get there. And everyone kept telling you, keep drinking, keep eating. And as it got hotter, the PB&Js and the pretzels, they just weren't that appealing. But the cold watermelon, the cold watermelon was awesome. And Kevin was telling stories the whole time about all the famous ultras he had run. He was talking about Western States and Leadville. And he was trying to convince himself to sign up for the Barkley. And I told him that was just plain stupid, which obviously made him want to do it more. But mostly I was quiet, I was working, and I was starting to get tired, and my stomach was getting a little yucky, and it was starting to be hard work. I had been pushing food, mostly watermelon, because it tasted so great in the afternoon sun and helped me keep my fluids up, and I was, I was happy to be peeing again. Last recorded pee break was around 30 miles, but I had another one when Kevin picked me up after 50. Kevin and I had worked hard really hard over those 16 miles and it it wasn't a super hard section but it was exposed and it was a little bit hot and I was starting to fail so at the 70 mile aid station Pine Hollow a big one that you pass through multiple times I was hitting a low point I was slumped in that chair staring at the grass wondering how I was going to keep moving the sun was starting to get low and I tried some awful coffee because I thought that might wake me up, and a few slices of watermelon. The watermelon was so good in the heat. And Mike was going to get me through the night, through 66 through to 91, and here we were at 70. And he was working hard to get me up out of that chair and keep going. And at some point they asked me if I wanted some to lube, some more lube, and I said, what's the point? Because my undercarriage was totally shredded. And Kevin joked that I should just cut the bottom out of my shorts and free ball. His words, not mine. Periodically, as I was sitting in that chair, these big chills would pass through me and I'd shudder. Not really chills of cold, more like chills of trauma and exhaustion. And the longer I sat, the worse I felt. I had changed my clothes at 50 miles and gotten a fresh shirt and shorts. I kept the speed goats on, and I left my socks on. I never took my socks off the whole race, because my feet were sore, but they didn't feel too bad, so I didn't want to mess with them. So shaky, bitchy, I pushed my complaining legs upright, and they dragged me out of that chair, and we began to, Mike and I began to hike out into the afternoon sun. Just as we were leaving that aid station, another big chill racked me, through to the core, and something shook loose. And I bent over, and I sprayed the grass with watermelon and coffee. And I got up what I could, and I dry heaved for a while. And, and Mike said, okay, well, that's a reset. Let's go walk it off. <laughs> so 30 miles to go, 70 miles in. I had plenty of time, but I was shutting down. Chris the runner, Chris the athlete, had left the building and Chris the Broken was now in the hands of his crew, and now the grim work of survival began. And in a 100-miler, this is where the race starts. Every step, every footfall was undiscovered country for me. Act 4, the crew, the work. The next loop with Mike was a short one, only 4.4 miles, and Mike was excited. He was excited to be pacing through the night. He was chatty like a kid on the first day of school, and we hiked a bit after I christened the grass at the aid station while I tried to recover my bearings. 
And that was the first time I had ever thrown up in a race in my life. And I actually felt good once I got my stomach cleared and we made good time running the downhills, hiking the uphills. But I knew I was living on borrowed time. I was worried. Without calories and water, it wasn't going to get easier. It was going to get a lot worse. And I had to figure out how to keep hydrated and get some fuel. And the nausea just came in waves, mostly at the top of the hard climbs. Just thinking about gel or sports drink at this point made my stomach flip. So I wouldn't take any more F2C or hammer gel for the rest of this race. I couldn't. And instead, I just tried to sip water. If I could stay reasonably hydrated, I could keep moving on my fat stores. Mike and Kevin did the math because I wasn't doing any math. All I had to do was keep moving and I would finish. I had plenty of time with my strong first half. And Mike started the mantra that we would carry through the next 30 miles. Just give me three miles an hour. That's all I need. And that's all I could give him. (laughs) Mile 75 was the ultimate low point for me. It was dark. I was done. I hadn't been able to take anything for hours. And it was, I had nothing. And the the guys wrangled me into a dry long sleeve shirt and a pair of gloves, threw a blanket over me. And I sat there in that aid station and just shook with the chills. And they were trying to get me up, get me going, but I couldn't move. I told them, hey, guys, I don't want to quit, but I just need to rest. I need to rest. So they gave me they gave me 10 minutes to close my eyes. And I didn't want to quit. I was, I was going to finish. I just wanted to rest a bit. But I, honestly, if those guys weren't there, I might have DNF'd by accident because I might have fallen asleep. I might have laid down and never gotten up again. Just because I was so wiped. But eventually I was able to peel myself out of the chair with their help and stumble on into the night. I knew from the trail chatter that the race got hilly and hard again through the 80s, and Mike set to hiking, and I fell in behind him. And I just kept his feet in my lights and kept moving. And this was the drill that would take us through the night. Mike would set the pace, and I would dutifully hike along behind him. My legs were gone. My hips were gone. But I was single-minded, three miles an hour. That's what I had, and that's what we did. Mike managed to get some noodle broth into me over the next 20 miles. Not a lot, you know, a few hundred calories, but it helped me normalize a bit. And I was able to keep sipping water as we went. And with the cooler night temperatures, I was keeping up. I had no balance left whatsoever. Every time I turned my head to look at something, I'd weave three steps in either direction like a drunken sailor. And Mike's favorite episode was me trying to rock hop across a stream in the 80s and ending up wedged head down, crumpled between two boulders, basically stuck head down between two rocks. And after that, he made sure to hold my hand on the creek crossings. (laughs) Every time we'd cross that creek, You know, we'd look at it and we knew we had another one of those big climbs straight up the other side. But I kept moving, kept hiking, and we kept beating that three-mile-an-hour mark as the race app called out the miles in the dark Ohio night. And Mike would say, when was the last time you took some water? And then he'd go, stout climb, stout climb. And I wasn't feeling so bad. I mean, I couldn't run, but I had found a certain stasis. I wasn't miserable per se, just this sort of low buzz of exhaustion. 
Once you get that low, once you get to that point, it doesn't get any worse. And Mike and I talked, and we hiked, and we hiked, and we talked, and slowly over the night, the hours and the miles clicked away, and I never thought about the finish line. I never thought about finishing. I just stayed in the moment, and I followed Mike. And every step was inevitably closer to the finish, and every step was one step further than I had ever run before. As we pushed through the hard sections, I started being able to take a full cup of noodles and broth at each aid station, and it was salty and warm and awesome, and I needed the salt. I was worried about cramping, because if I got cramping, you know, I'd be done, because uh, I couldn't take the Endurolites anymore. I couldn't stomach them, and I couldn't get any sports gel or sports drink in. I still got some small waves of nausea and even a random dry heave every once in a while at the top of a hard climb, but I had basically bottomed out or turned the corner, so to speak. And surprisingly, we didn't get past as much as I thought we would. Mostly it was relay runners who would pound past us and apologize for being relay runners. And then towards the end, we saw a big wave, a lot of these 50 milers, the back half 50 milers, because you could either run the first half or the back half of the race as a 50. Surprisingly, we did still pass people once in a while. Even up in the 90s, I was passing people, and they look really shattered. When Mike and I looped through the Covered Bridges aid station, which is that hard bit in the 80s, we passed through twice. And I was really surprised to see how many runners were behind us when we came through the second time. You know, that put them two, three hours behind us. And this was the pirate-themed aid station. (laughs) And Mike kept getting annoyed with me because he wanted to push through these aid stations. And I I kept finding chairs. (laughs) And he'd have to pull me out of the chair. And it, it wasn't bad like it had been earlier. I was recovered and moving, just exhausted, just spent and exhausted. And Mike started to go quiet on me as we pushed through the hard stuff in the 80s and hiked into Sunday morning to meet up with Kevin, who would take me in. So Mike did a a, a three-mile-an-hour marathon with me. I still couldn't run, but we were keeping that three miles an hour, or better, consistently. And we were through the hard stuff and back onto the rolling roads for most of the rest of the race. And then Kevin picked me up at 91. I was in good spirits. My head was clear. Somehow in my head, I kept thinking it was a 100-mile race and forgetting that it is actually over 102 miles. Even this late in the race, I refused to talk about finishing. I stayed on task, hiking through the streets of Cuyahoga Falls in the morning dark with Kevin out in front, setting a strong pace. And somehow Mike didn't figure out how the the phone battery worked in my iPhone and it went dead at the 91 mile aid station. So everyone watching me online, which at this point probably only included a few people in Europe, saw me stop dead at mile 91. So I and I really did miss that comforting voice of the race app calling out the miles. There were rumors about one last climb before the finish and a set of stairs. And sure enough, in the high 90s, we had to push up a couple seemingly significant hills in the dark. And I was struggling on these. My legs were were gone. 
And I paused on a steep slope at one point, and Kevin saw me teetering backwards, and he was rushing down the trail. Everything's happening in slow motion, right, to catch me. But I was able to right myself and avoid that awful slow motion tumble back down the hill. We came to that stair section as just as the sun was coming up. It was hard, but it had a railing, so you could lean in and use your arms. And my headlamp and my flashlight had been steadily dimming, but the sun was coming up now with just a handful of miles to go, and we emerged onto the bike path that would lead us to the finish. All we had was Kevin's watch to go by, and he thought there was less than a mile to go. Turns out we were off a bit, and the finish seemed to take forever, but it didn't matter. I had been hiking for the better part of 17 hours, and a few more did not matter. I hiked to within a couple hundred feet of the clock and managed to drag out a shaky jog across the mats. 26 hours, 44 minutes, 9 or 10 hours of running, and 16, 17 hours of hiking. I got my buckle and sat in a chair. I look like hell in the photos. Like anything after 50 miles, I look like hell. Like a paraplegic in a wheelchair. Like a broken old man. And there was nothing triumphant about this finish. I was tired and glad to be done. I was fantasizing about laying down. I would have liked to have done better, but I gave the race what I could, and I didn't quit. And the credit goes to Dirt Dog and Just Finished for knowing what to do. It helped them. It helped me so much to be able to not worry about logistics, to be able to just pick up my feet and put them down and follow somebody, simplify the effort to make it manageable. So then we walked back to my hotel, and my wife had dutifully stayed clear of the race like I asked her to do. That's a whole nother story, right? And I talked the front desk into giving me uh, a key to my room, which uh, that would make a funny sitcom series. And Kevin and Mike took off to get home, dropped me in my room, and headed off so they could get home, up back to Detroit. I stripped off my foul clothing and my shoes, and, and I just laid down. And I passed out immediately. I remember my wife waking me up at some point, but all I could give was slurred words. And I slept till about noon. When I got up, I carefully cleaned the raw skin on my undercarriage and lubed it up with antibacterial ointment. Kevin and Mike told me that the trick is to lube up all the raw bits before you get in the shower, and then they won't sting as badly, and that worked fairly well. So I showered up and went off with Yvonne to a cheesesteak sub and a beer at the Finish Line Brewery. Then we went to see a movie. I felt pretty good. And it's just about a week later now. I haven't run yet. I've been moving along fairly well all week. Been tired. We did sleep over Sunday night, and we drove back Monday. I even did some of the driving. And I volunteered at a Habitat for Humanity build on Wednesday, swinging a hammer and carrying boards. I've been really tired all week, and I haven't, I, I've been eating a ton. I rode my bike twice. My legs seem okay, tired, achy. My undercarriage is really itchy as it heals. It's like having a bad sunburn, and then when it heals, it itches. I had a bit of a bruise, a ding on my left shoulder from that jamming myself around that boulder in the creek crossing. 
So I went to give blood Friday night, and they wouldn't take me. My iron levels are too low, and that's never happened before. My chemistry is still a bit goofy from the race, apparently. What's the summary on this campaign? What are my thoughts? What can we learn from this? Well, first, you know, guys, 100 miles isn't that hard. I mean, you have 30 hours to do it in. I think anyone who trained decently and had a good crew could finish a 100-miler. I mean, I could have kept hiking for a few more hours. Once you hit that low point, it doesn't get worse. And second, the training was really cool. Like all these campaigns, I really enjoyed the training. I learned a lot about my body and what it was capable of. I think the big base that I built up with these long, slow, high-mile weeks will pay off in whatever I choose to do next. And third, you know, a good crew is invaluable. These guys were champs. They just stepped in and took over. All my decision-making was handled, and all I had to do was follow. Get a good crew. You can do anything. Fourth, you know, your body can adapt to anything. It's your mind that holds you back. I'm coming up on 56 years old. And my body adapted over the training cycle and just figured it out. Could I have done better? Honestly, I don't know how much going out slower would have helped. I think it's just such a long time to be on your feet that you're going to hit the wall at some point. I don't think there's any avoiding that. Would I do it again? I don't know. I still don't get it. I know I can do it. I always figured I could do it. I just don't have an emotional draw for it. Never say never, but I'm in no hurry to run another hundred. What would I have done differently? Well, I think I should have practiced for this course more hiking, especially on those steep hills. That was something I used a lot in this race and didn't do much of in training. I might have worked in more hiking early in this race, especially when it got hot, but I'm not sure how much of a difference it really would have made. So that's it. Adventure complete. I ran my first 100 miler. I finished. I got to spend some time with some friends. I got to have an adventure with my wife. I got to run further than I have ever gone. 102 plus miles. Because I did get lost a little bit at one point. I added <laughs> I added probably a half to three quarters of a mile. And I got to throw up. I'm going to call that a successful outing. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have hiked for 16 hours through to the end of episode 4-391. Nice work. Have a nap. And that closes another chapter for us here at Run Run Live. This summer marks the 11th anniversary of starting the podcast, and it's good to see so many people still listening and following. So what's next? Well, I'll more than likely run the Wapak 18-miler over Labor Day weekend. I highly recommend this race, especially if you're training for a fall race. It will make you strong. And when you take on these adventures, when you meet people, when you read books, or any other interaction outside yourself, there is a necessary exchange. Every time you go outside yourself and rub up against something external, you are changed. 
And this is one of the beautiful things about life. You're always changing and growing. You could think of these exchanges as an infection of sort. Your body, your mind, your spirit absorb these influences and react to them. And the result is something new, something different. And if we are strong, if we are open, if we are positive, these infections become enhancements. They are additive. They make us better. We keep what fits. We become stronger in the process. So don't be afraid to open up and embrace the external. Swim upstream. And I'll see you out there.
short break. We'll be back in just a few minutes, so don't everybody fall into the pit.